0: Well, there are seven centurions who are portrayed and referenced in the New Testament. And the centurion was very much the archetypal uh, symbol, representation of the military, of the Roman army. And yet in the New Testament, they become a symbol for us of what it means to be faithful and what it means to see something of Jesus, Interestingly, not one of the centurions in the New Testament are ever told to stop being a centurion, to stop being a serving soldier. There's the centurion, the most famous one, who commanded the crucifixion squad. And this is a man as familiar with death as he is with breath. He has seen countless die, many under his own sword, no doubt. And yet, after watching the way that Jesus dies, he can say, truly, this man is the Son of God. Then there's the centurion Cornelius, whose generosity towards the poor, his almsgiving, and his prayer life have come up before God like incense, And God sends angels to Cornelius, and God sends a prophecy and visions to St. Peter, and brings the two together so that the gospel can come to Cornelius, and he and his household can be embraced in the family of faith. He is a symbol of faithfulness. There are the four centurions who have dealings with Paul, and all of them, in their dealings with him, protect him, They respect him, and they act in his benefit, often to save his life. And then we have our centurion this morning in Luke chapter 7. And he sends Jewish leaders, interestingly, who are willing to be sent by him, to ask Jesus to heal his servant. There was a very famous minister of Westminster Chapel who ministered through the Blitz. He was called Campbell Morgan. And he wrote this, in all these centurions there is something to admire. In some of them there is much to admire. And in one of them there is everything to admire. And that's the one we're thinking about this morning. This is an admirable man. He was an exemplary warrior But he proves to be for us an an exemplary man of God. Now, each of the three British Armed Forces have what are called values and standards. Uh, If you like, kind of ethical, moral uh, underpinnings and framework for their being and their doing. And the army has six of them. Let me list them. Courage, discipline, respect, integrity, loyalty, and selfless commitment. Well, I want us to think this morning about four values and standards that we can infer from just this little cameo from this centurion soldier. And they are compassion, generosity, humility, and faith. This Roman centurion teaches us principles for living in the kingdom of God. Firstly then, the centurion has such great compassion. In verse 2 it says that uh, Jesus had come to Capernaum and here was a centurion whose servant is sick. And we're told that the centurion valued the servant highly. The servant is about to die. And so the centurion asks Jewish leaders... If they would go on behalf of him to Jesus and ask Jesus to help. Twice the text calls him a servant. But the Greek word doulos literally is is, is a male slave. And uh, this person would have been under total subjection to his owner, to his master. He was his slave. Rome ran on slaves. In the first century, a third of Italy was said to be slaves, the third of the population. And some are born into it, are the children of other slaves or the children of slaves and their owners and so on. But most will have been victims brought into slavery through defeat in war. And the Roman military had a motto, vi victis, which means woe to the vanquished. Literally no mercy was shown. Professor Keith Bradley of Notre Dame University, for our Americans, Notre Dame, he wrote this, millions lived their lives in a state of legal and social non-existence with no rights of any kind. They were non-persons. Many did not even have names, and they're not allowed to own anything. Someone else wrote, owners thought of their slaves as enemies. By definition, slavery was a brutal, violent, dehumanizing institution where slaves were seen as akin to animals. And I read this week one um, uh, ancient text in treating as sort of ha- a household management of, of you know, your slaves and said, every year, go through your animals, your tools, and your slaves, and whatever is not fit for purpose, do away with. They were put in that category, just tools, just things. But look how a centurion treats him. Look how he feels about him. The word that is used there in the Greek is entimos, And it literally means a treasured thing, a precious thing. He was dear to him. Actually, one of the words that he uses for him is my child. And so, this servant who is sick, whose sickness is unto death, is not somehow dehumanized as most servants and slaves were. He's not a tool, he's not a thing. But he's a person, and what stands out is the compassion of this centurion. He's not being pragmatic. He's not thinking, get this tractor back to work. He's thinking, this dear child, this servant, is sick, and I want him well, and I'm going to someone who can deal with it. It seems that he's loved, and respected, and valued, and honored. The centurion at a word can take the life of this servant it's his right and yet the servant wants only to give him life theologian wrote to me this week and uh, we were talking about stuff and she highlighted the fact that medieval image of god there was a word for it i think the word is something like kind heeder and i don't know if it comes from the old high german but essentially the attribute of God was kindness. There are so many other attributes of him, but kindness, one that we don't often talk about. We don't often reflect on. But God, the overflow of God to us is kindness. And uh, Mother Junior of Norwich said that the opposite of the character of God at work in someone is unkindness. And here we see a centurion, a man of war, and yet there is this overflowing kindness. I love it, he's a kind centurion. My friend Mark is here, he served for 22 years as a regular with the British Armed Forces, five years in the Parachute Regiment, 17 with the Special Air Service, and he loves Jesus. And uh, he was telling me, not boasting, I'm boasting about him, that when he was in Pakistan last year, he was unable to get out of the country, and uh, was in lockdown and there in lockdown he was with a christian community and they were unable to work they lived literally hand to mouth unable to work unable to receive daily pay unable to be to buy rice they were going hungry and there was no state underpinning and and social services helping them out and so mark a warrior calls in his mates and raises thousands of pounds and fed several hundred every day for many months we've got here a compassionate centurion we need to be inspired by that is that kindness evident in my life who am i being kind to it's reflecting the kindness of the kingdom Ours is a kind kingdom with a kind king Secondly, the centurion has great generosity. In verse 4, it says, When the elders came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and built our synagogue. Now, that is an extraordinary thing. Often we could just move very quickly over it when reading it. But we have Jewish elders pleading on behalf of this Roman of someone who represented the occupying enemy. And the Jewish people hated the Romans because the Romans, they just had so many gods. Every nation they conquered, they just took their gods, except the God of Israel. They didn't include that one in their pantheon. And so they, they were perceived as, you know, not just did they just, were they their enemy not only had they defeated them, but they were occupying their land. And here was a Roman centurion who represented their despised enemy who would conquered them. And there had been some terrible massacres at the hands of the Romans. And yet they go on his behalf and say, he built a synagogue for us. Can you come and help him? I've actually been to Capernaum, it's in, on the north coast of Galilee, and there are there today, you can go and stand in the place, the remains of two synagogues, one from the 3rd century and one from the 1st century. And it's almost certain that it is the synagogue that was paid for and built by this man. And stood there amazing. The question, though, is why? Why would he build this synagogue? Why would he pay at considerable expense to build it? Is he seeking to appease those that he's defeated? I don't think so. The synagogue was a place to honor God, to seek God, to study God. And I think that this centurion, I think we can infer from the text, had come to God. God was a work in his life, and he wanted to set. Why is there no place, he thinks? for the study, the seeking, and the honoring of God. We can't go up every week to Jerusalem, but we can be here. Let me build a place to meet the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The other question, of course, is how could he afford it? Well, centurions actually were very wealthy. I came across a document that said that the average centurion was paid 15 times more than your average Legionnaire. Imagine that. Imagine being a sergeant major paid 15 times what a squad he is. And on top of that, they were given all sorts of financial gifts if they were successful in battle. He was a wealthy man, but how does he use his money? He builds a synagogue for God. Why? At such personal extravagant expense, It certainly is not to please or appease the locals. I think it's because he's a God-fearer, and he wants more of God, and he wants them to know more of God. And in verse five, the Jewish leaders say, please come and do this because he loves our nation. I mean, it seems so incongruous. This centurion, the archetypal warrior loves, what, what does he love? Our people, conquered enemies. It's amazing. I think God's done a great work in his life. God's done a great work in his heart. And it is extraordinary. He loves our nation. Oxford history professor Martin Goodman said, anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews as a people group, begins with the Romans. And you can trace with Tacitus and Cicero statements and writings that Uh, are the sort of anti-Semitic slurs and canards that we hear all the way up to, including and since, the Nazis. They were the first to despise the Jews as a people because they perceived them to be against the gods, atheists, against all the gods because they would only worship one. The Roman centurion who loves the Jews, wonderful. Why? Because he loves the God of Israel. And he builds a synagogue to honor and to encounter that God. In the movie Field of Dreams, some of you will have seen it, there's that there's a little phrase, if you build it, he will come. And here, in the armpit of the Roman Empire in northern Galilee, is he stationed here or is he retired here? We don't know. But he builds a synagogue to meet with God. And God comes in Christ Jesus. And you know, if you read the Gospels, he spends more time in Capernaum than anywhere else. It's very special to him. He's from Nazareth, our Lord Jesus, but he doesn't hang out there because they don't recognize him. He wants to be in Capernaum, it's where Simon Peter's fishing business was. And we all know he was a rubbish fisherman. And it's where he does miracles. In this synagogue, Jesus delivers a demonized man. In this synagogue, in Capernaum, Jesus teaches the great uh, message on Jesus as the bread of life. It happens there, where the centurion built it, his generosity towards the people as an overflow, I think, of an encounter with God. Then thirdly, the centurion has great humility. Verse 6, the centurion sent friends to Jesus saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself. He hears that he's coming. Don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. In fact, he says, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. I'm not worthy to come to you. I'm not worthy for you to come to me. And this is extraordinary humility. This centurion is the most senior professional soldier in the Roman army. And he's chosen because of his skills and his scars, and he's he's confident in any community. And his rank was earned. You couldn't be born to it. You couldn't buy it. You earned it by surviving battle after battle after battle and showing courage and bravery. There was a high mortality rate. Centurions were the first in. And they were the last out. They led from the front. And this is the statue, statue of our centurion. And soldiers respected him. And, and his enemies feared him. His servants obeyed him. He's a man of substance. And he says to Jesus, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Interestingly, the Jewish authorities go to Jesus and say, this man is worthy of you to come and do this. And then he sends word, I'm not worthy for you to come to me, and I'm not worthy to even come to you. Can you see how extraordinary that humility is? He is worthy. He says, I'm not worthy. He recognizes the divine is with Jesus. We don't know quite what he understands, but he calls him Lord. And he says, no, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house or me to come anywhere near you. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And as we'll see, he says, just speak the word. So there's great humility here. And there's a great honoring of Jesus. And humility before him and honoring of him just seems to release the Lord's goodness and his power. And then fourthly, the centurion has great faith. Verse 7, just say the word. I'm not worthy for you to come to me. I'm not worthy to come to you. Just say a word. and My servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority. With my soldiers, I tell them to go and one goes. And I say, come and he comes. And that's how it works. He understands authority. The centurion understands orders and commands. And that authority backs up a command and power backs up the authority. That the word is efficacious. It achieves something. There is power behind that word with the person who gives the word. If they're a power holder. He says, I understand how this works. So just say the word. At your word, sickness can be dispatched from this person. Who's ever heard of such a thing? I think. This centurion had been reading Genesis 1-2. God says, let there be light. And there was light. I think this centurion is a God-fearer who is just coming to understand the nature of God. And he knows that here in Jesus is one with the authoritative word that can set demonized people free and can heal the sick. And will he just speak a word over my dear servant? The philosopher Dallas Willard says, God's word has the power to create, to rule, and to redeem. And this Roman centurion, this fighting man, he gets it. Speak a word. You don't have to come. I'm not worthy to come to you. From a distance, you can speak, and reality is created and transformed. The centurion knows he can only wish his servant to be healed. But he knows that Jesus has the word of life that can transform, create, rule, and redeem. Brilliant, isn't it? Where do we need the Lord to speak his word into our life? What, what area of our life or our situation do we need God to speak his word and rule and redeem and create life, maybe in our relationships, maybe in our work situation, maybe we've got problems with our health, or uh, maybe we've just got a vision and and, and it hasn't come to pass, maybe we've got ideas but we don't know how to, 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 to make them, to move to the next step, we want the Lord to speak a word to help us, to be all that we can be and do all that we can do. And the word comes through the Jewish authorities of the to Jesus. Don't come to me, and I am not worthy to come to you. Just say a word. Send the command with all your authority and the power, you know, your authority behind the word and your power behind the authority, and it will come to pass. Speak a word. When Jesus heard this, verse 9, he was amazed and said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in all Israel. Such great faith. The Greek really underlines it there. This is such a great bloke. Such a great soldier. Such a great humility in him. Such a great compassion in him. Such a great generosity in him. But all of those things because of such great faith in such a great God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the Bible tells us. But with faith, we please God, and all things become possible. And where does the centurion gain this faith? Well, I think he's been seeking God. And he's heard the name Jesus, and he's heard of the things that accompany Jesus Was he there in the synagogue when Jesus healed the demonized man? Is it in Luke 4? Was he there in the the synagogue when Jesus taught the bread of life? Discourse. Was he there when Simon Peter's mother-in-law was healed and the whole town turned out and brought all their sick and got healed and delivered? If he wasn't there, he heard about it. He's the man with authority in the town. Word got to him. That's how he knows. And his heart expands. There is hope. My dying servant. I can't bear to lose him. Here's here's someone who can turn the situation around. Just speak a word. My servant will be healed. And faith brings its own reward. says in verse 10, then the men who'd been sent returned to the house and they found the servant well. Yeah, Jesus. He can speak a word. Behind that word is authority. Behind that authority is power because he is the eternal son of God made flesh and he's bringing his kingdom. Perhaps the band would like to come up. We're going to worship, but let me pull this to a close. It says Jesus was amazed. He was astonished. He was bowled over. He was mind blown. He was absolutely wowed by this. And you know, the term amazed is used of Jesus 33 times in the Gospels. 33 times. It says the people were amazed at what Jesus said. They were amazed at what Jesus did. Amazement around Jesus. Wonderment around him. But only once is Jesus ever amazed in a positive way. Only once is it said of him, he was amazed positively by this. He was once amazed negatively at the lack of faith in Nazareth. And he was amazed by this centurion who was a Gentile who had greater faith than any person he had met to that point in Israel. More than all his disciples who were already chosen, this fighting man had the faith. I wrote a book last year called Amazed by Jesus thinking maybe my next book should be something like how to amaze Jesus I'd love to amaze you. I'd love for Jesus to turn to the angels one day and say look at Simon amazing I mean often people might say that about me with incredulity and nice you know. but imagine the Lord speaking that over our life and what would we need to do what is he calling us to do that he can say to the angels, just look at that. That's what's happening here with the centurion. He's amazing. And he's amazed, he amazes Jesus because he knows Jesus is amazing. We're gonna stand, we're gonna worship.